When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pod Save the King! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the King. I am your host, Anne Gripper, and I am delighted to be joined by Martin Williams, who has written the book The King is Dead, Long Live the King, which um, turned out to be remarkably timely in the end, Martin. I guess when you were writing about it, sadly, that it's come at this era of change for us all. So I'm looking forward to hearing about then and now and the echoes. And welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. So the king that is the subject of your book is Edward VII, King Charles's great-great-grandfather, Queen Victoria's eldest son, Bertie, who... um, I expect a lot of our listeners may be most familiar with from the uh, the drama series Victoria, which we've all, all many of us have been enjoying watching. Um, what what was it? What is it that attracts you to him and that particular era? And what you know? What, what did you enjoy writing about it? Well, I've always been a voracious reader of biographies and social histories, and particularly histories of European royalty in the early twentieth century. And I had long been searching for a suitable subject to turn into a book of my own. And I'm a dedicated Instagram user under the username Disraeli81, no relation to the Victorian prime minister, I hasten to add. And uh, back in 2019, I made um, a post with an extended caption about the legendary Black Ascot of June 1910, when high society attended the annual race meeting in head-to-toe black in homage to Edward VII, who had died the previous month. And over dinner, a couple of weeks later, a great friend of mine said, well, you're looking for a subject for a book. Why not expand upon your Instagram post about Black Ascot and tell us more about the context in which that unique event unfolded? And from there, it became an organic process to explore the world of 1910, over a century ago now, and the role of Edward VII, a king who really defined the Edwardian era to which he gave his name, who died in May that year, and whose passing really marked a kind of severance between the long Victorian period and its Edwardian coda and the world that we live in today. So in some ways, I guess it was him acceding the throne that is the real reflection of of today, maybe, because it, like like our King Charles, um, he had a very long apprenticeship as the Prince of Wales while Victoria was on the throne for decades. That is so. And Edward's almost unprecedented tenure as Prince of Wales Uh, really equipped him with the skills to be an exceptional monarch. Um, The hopes that accompanied him to the throne on the death of his mother in 1901 were, it has to be said, extremely low. Victoria herself was extremely apprehensive 
about uh, the way in which he would acquit himself when at last he came to the throne. And yet Edward wildly surpassed expectations when he acceded in January 1901. So why, were, why was Victoria worried about him? And why did he turn out to be so good? I think the answer to that is that in some ways, Victoria and Edward were very similar. They both had um, a strong will, uh, a strong temper. They both knew their own minds. And yet in other ways, they were poles apart. Um, Victoria was um, a very dutiful, very diligent, uh, stay at home in a way. Um, her marriage to her German husband, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and, and Gotha was um, famously successful. They were very loving. Uh, they had a very large family of nine children and they really fostered a very domestic image of royalty and the crown. Whereas Edward VII, um, who was Prince of Wales for, uh, my goodness, almost 60 years. He was 59 when he came to the throne in, in 1901. Edward VII was gregarious. He was charismatic. He was outgoing. He was cosmopolitan. The one thing Edward VII was not was a stay-at-home. Um, he loved European travel, indeed international travel, and he also immersed himself in the world of high society, upon which Queen Victoria had really turned her back and Edward VII um, engaged in many society pursuits, house parties, shooting parties, race meetings, gambling. Um, he met a broad array of um, other members of high society and he had liaisons with women in high society. And there were a few episodes, most famously, in 1870 and in 1891, where he sailed perilously close to the wind of scandal. Um, on the first occasion, there was a, a divorce case, the so-called Mordaunt divorce case, in which Edward was implicated. In 1891, there was a gambling scandal, the Tramby Croft scandal. Um, and there was around Edward this feeling of um, his reputation, uh, his standing were called into question by moralists, uh, Republicans, members of the Victorian middle class and Queen Victoria herself. So the hopes that accompanied Edward to the throne in, in 1901 were not high. So you mentioned um, Republicans and Republicanism, because again, watching, watching the Victoria uh, uh, TV show, there were various protests periodically sort of through her reign and things. And I think there is always that feeling of you know, at a time of change, will there be more processing? You know, we see it at the moment. There have been occasional eggs lobbed at the king, which is not very regal and is certainly not something we saw being lobbed uh, in the late Queen's direction, happily. Um, but I, at the same time, I think possibly there hasn't been as much noise about republicanism now as I might have as I might have expected as we were sort of approaching the... Um, the change of era because it you know the the late queen was around for a very long time had a lot of respect and was, I think there's a lot of affection for her and Charles has always come over as maybe slightly more awkward than was that he had the whole sort of 
you know, so many people were team Diana rather than team Charles and that sort of challenge for him. And he, you know, has he, did he come into it with the affection of the nation that his mother could rely on? So I, I was expecting there to be quite a lot more hoo-ha and questioning of sort of British identity and, and change than maybe we have seen. I mean, equally, maybe I've been a bit more under, under, I don't think I've been completely under a rock while I've been out on, ma on maternity leave, but I think I would, you know, I think it would have, I would have expected a bit more conversation and, and questioning in some ways, whereas actually I think we've, we've all gone quite British and just carried on. Um, how, I guess, how have you seen this change of era and how, how, how does it compare to that last one from that perspective? Well, I think the first point you made is one of the most important. Um, Her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II left a great legacy behind her. She was the uh, longest reigning sovereign in British history, uh, surpassing Queen Victoria, who until um, I forget the exact date that Queen Elizabeth II um, exceeded the reign of Queen Victoria, but it was um, fairly recently. Um, Queen Elizabeth II was a hugely respected monarch, um, even if you didn't love her, even if you don't agree with the institution of monarchy. I, I think many people at the time of her death really surprised themselves by recognizing and realizing how much they had respected her. So I think that the smoothness of the transition that we saw in early September and that we're still seeing now to a, to a large extent is really testament to the, the strength of the legacy Queen Elizabeth II left behind her. But the other point I would raise is that, um, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth II reigned for 70 years. So a change of reign for virtually everyone alive today is, is a novel event. But 70 years in the history of the British monarchy is not a long time. Um, we have centuries uh, and there have been innumerable uh, changes of, of monarch and it is an organic process. What is more organic than life and death? And so I think the institution of the crown, of royalty, of the monarchy. What is new to us is not new to the crown. Um, you know, there were um, numerous changes of monarch in the 20th century, in 1901, in 1910, in 1936, the blip of the abdication crisis uh, in 1953, and that really, 1952, I beg your pardon, uh, and that brings us up to today. So what seems novel to us is not novel in the history of the crown and the British royal family. I think it's also interesting thinking about how the sort of apprenticeship um, as Prince of Wales and that transition into then becoming king, because it almost sounds like the sort of the working life of, of Bertie, Prince of Wales as he, as he was, was quite positive, where the personal life was bit dicey in places but actually his sort of um I don't know relationship building was seen as a positive thing and I think actually you know with Charles there's quite a lot of concern maybe that he's almost a bit too political he's a bit too interested in those kinds of things whereas you know from the from the sort of 
historical periods that um, Edward VII was in, where there was still that network of monarchy across Europe, to which he was related, actually that sort of diplomatic role was quite important and it it was valued, what he could bring to it on a political perspective. Whereas with Charles, it's a bit more like, you know, you, we know you care about this stuff, but you, you can't tell us about it anymore. You've got to uh, keep your own counsel. You are right. I agree with everything that you've said. It's interesting that you began by talking about um, the working life of Edward VII as Prince of Wales. He really didn't have a working life so much. Queen Victoria hugged her duties as monarch close to her. Um, and she was very, very reluctant to relinquish any of her prerogatives, any of her duties, to delegate them to Edward, um, the Prince of Wales, her son and heir. So many of the initiatives that Edward undertook, he undertook under his own steam. Um, he transformed himself into the leader of high society, indeed, I think it's no exaggeration to say that he transformed himself into the leader of European high society. And in an era when the leaders of power were really held by members of the aristocracy, Edward really honed um, a place of influence for himself. Power and transactions took place not so much in the chancelleries of Europe, but also behind the scenes at country house parties and in private members clubs. And this was the world that Edward VII made his own. So even though he didn't have an official role, a role that was delegated to him by his mother and by the government, his social life and his working life sort of interlocked as it were. And the other point I would make, um, a, a, a real point of highlighting is um, he was, as you say, related to virtually every crowned head in Europe. When he came to the throne in 1901, he was the uncle not only of the Emperor of Germany, but also of the Emperor of Russia. Um, through his wife, Queen Alexandra, he was closely related to the kings of Denmark and Greece. His daughter Maud became Queen of Norway, and several of his nieces were the queens or queens-in-waiting of Spain, Romania, and Sweden. So Edward enjoyed unprecedented outreach in the courts of Europe, and his love of travelling, which he really undertook uh, because of pure pleasure, Edward was incredibly peripatetic, more peripatetic than any Prince of Wales or King had been until that time. And Edward was really able to turn his pursuit of pleasure to account as Prince of Wales and King by fostering these incredible relationships. And through those relationships, those personal relationships, coming to enjoy considerable political and diplomatic influence, uh, which really stood him in good stead as king in defiance of the expectation of his mother, Queen Victoria, and many British people at the time. I know your, your book sort of focuses on the end of his reign in that sort of that black ascot, but I think probably because of the point we're at in history, I'm almost more um, leaning towards the start of his reign and when he was taking over from his from his mother after her her long reign. I mean, what do you think there is anything that our King Charles could 
could and should learn from looking back at how Edward VII coped with following following in such, well, big shoes or possibly tiny shoes as they were uh, in Victoria's case in real terms. That's rather a difficult question to answer. It would seem to me that um, Edward as Prince of Wales and Charles, now King Charles III as Prince of Wales are two rather different men. Um, and also the, the social and political and cultural context in which they are operating is, is very, very different. Um, although, as I attempt to, to pull out in my book, there are also some really striking similarities between the world of 1910 and 2022, now 2023. And as I wrote, it was very interesting to realise that although the world of 1910 seems impossibly remote and alien to us, there are striking similarities between the world of 1910 and the world of 2022 to 2023, um, how Charles will contend with the social, political, cultural context in which he is now reigning remains to be seen. Um, of course, Edward in 1910 was signing out, he died, but his son, George V, uh, stepped into a, uh, a rather troubled context in 1910 and yet acquitted himself remarkably well. So what are the what are the echoes that you see then particularly between sort of 1910 and, and 23? Um, they are they are numerous and they are striking. And it was it wasn't so much when I was writing the book that I had these parallels in mind. It was only when I finished the first draft and I was actually uh, editing the first draft when when Her Late Majesty Elizabeth II died. It was only when I was editing the first draft of the book as a whole that I realized, my goodness, there are noticeable parallels between the world of 1910 and the world of 2022. Um, I mean, most obviously in my book, I cover the death and the lying in state and funeral in 1910 of King Edward VII. And it was rather surreal to see as I was working on my book, playing out on the television that I had on in, in the corner of the room, the lying in state of Queen Elizabeth II in Westminster Hall, the parallel was almost eerie. Edward VII was the first British monarch to lie in state in Westminster Hall, and hundreds of thousands of members of the British public filed past his coffin in 1922, sorry, in 1910, just as they did in 2022. And the site and ceremonial of the two lines in state separated by almost a century, they were essentially unchanged. Um, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II took place in exactly the same place, St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, as the funeral of Edward VII in May 1910. So the parallels on the surface were extremely obvious, but moving back from the death or the deaths and the funerals and the lying in states, um, there are various parallels between the world of 2010 and 2022. Um, 
both were periods of extraordinary ferment. Uh, politically, the latter years of the reign of Edward VII and the opening one of his successor, George V, were troubled by um, a long-running battle, a long-running political battle. Um, in 1910, rolling over into 1911, the House of Commons and the House of Lords were effectively at war. Um, over the stake in government of the hereditary, meaning unelected, second chamber represented by the House of Lords. Um, the protracted crisis, uh, the House of Lords in 1910 still exercised the power of veto over legislation introduced and passed by democratically elected government represented by the Commons. Um, the protracted crisis in 1910 has been called one of the most um, well, one of the greatest and most important constitutional crises in Britain's history. It was, I suppose, the Edwardian version of Brexit um, and the troubled tenures of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Um, Edward VII had a very thorny relationship with Herbert Henry Asquith, his prime minister in 1910. Um, although it has to be said that um, her late majesty Elizabeth II was never as closely and immediately involved in the Brexit process as Edward VII was in the parliamentary crisis that roiled and agitated the latter years of his reign. Um, 1910 saw not one but two general elections take place um, and Edward was so infuriated by the detention and the incipient chaos in Parliament that he actually toyed with the idea of abdication. So uh, there are certain parallels, I think, between the parliamentary crisis of 1910 and I suppose um, the, 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 the entire business of Brexit, which has consumed so much political energy over the past few years. Oh, that would have been a good way to end the Brexit to and fro, wouldn't it? Be you know, Liz had just said, "Oh, enough of enough of this. This is ridiculous. I've had enough. I've done it for years and years, but I'm throwing my hat in, my crown. You can have it back because this is just all all too much. It's quite an ex extreme card to play. It's a bit bigger than my granny used to tip up the cards when she didn't like the ones she had. But, uh, but yeah." Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's um wow that was a that must have been a big old uh, to do to be to be talking about that but um thinking about the the sort of the mourning and things I guess sort of the 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 period of mourning that we had between the death of the queen and then the funeral I think for for some people in the country it felt like this is quite a long time for everything to come to a stop. For some people, you know, it, it felt natural and, and normal and other people, you know, we, we live our life at such a fast pace now. The idea of like Ascot being still dressed in black five weeks on gives just a, sort of an illustration of how long that that period sort of, of went on really back in the day. 
Absolutely. And in striking various parallels between the world of 1910 and the world of 2022, it was impossible not to highlight the incredible differences that separate our world from the world of the Edwardians. The Edwardians inherited um, the ritualized codified system and etiquette of mass mourning from the preceding generation, um, the Victorians. The Victorians had fostered and created something that was known as the cult of mourning. And by the turn of the 10th, 20th century, and for several years into the 20th century, certainly in 1910, the, court, the, the, the cult of mourning was still, was still subscribed to by vast swathes of the British public. And when you have an immensely popular high profile figure like the king dying, it was second nature for vast swathes of the British population of every class and political background to don the trappings of mourning for a requisite period. Court mourning was decreed for 12 months. Um, general mourning was decreed for uh, the, the, the country as a whole for a shorter period, but it was still a lengthy period of, of many weeks. And when Ascot, the annual race meeting at Ascot took place in mid-June, Edward had died five or six weeks earlier, and the nation was still enveloped in black. And it was actually during um, well, actually, at the end of Ascot Week in 1910, that the nation transitioned into something called half mourning. So half mourning was when the British population at last, after five or six weeks, was able to set aside its clothing of unrelieved black and step into half mourning of white and grey and various shades of purple. Now to us in 2022, this seems incredibly arcane and formal and restrictive, yet for vast numbers of people in 1910, this, this sartorial manifestation of a state of grief was second nature. They understood the codes, they understood the rules, and they played by the rules. So this is the, the equivalent then, I guess, of going to lay your Paddingtons and your flowers in uh, in Green Park in um, in central London. So we're recording this as we're looking ahead to the coronation, thinking about the, the echoes from, I guess, both ends of Edward VII's reign. How, I don't know, I guess, what are your hopes and expectations and fears for, for the start of this new era? I've been thinking about this question, and although I've given it a lot of thought, I, I do find it a rather difficult question to answer. For the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, um, the last coronation took place in the radically different world of 1953. That's 70 years, and British society has changed utterly in the intervening decades. And I think even though we have television and film footage and innumerable photographs of the coronation in 1953, until the coronation actually happens in May this year, it's going to be very difficult for any of us to imagine or envisage what it may 
be like um, a coronation is by far the grandest and most significant event in the life of um, any monarch. That being said, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953 uh, was likely the grandest and most well choreographed coronation of all time. And I very much doubt we will see anything like that level of splendor in May this year. That's partly because of the political and cultural backdrop against which this coronation will take place. We've got the war in Ukraine abroad, we have the cost of living crisis at home, and an unprecedented amount of attention is being paid to the role and legacy in British society of the British Empire, the legacy of slavery. There has also been the almost complete erosion of the hereditary class system. So I very much doubt we will see massed peers and peeresses in their coronets and robes of velvet and ermine in Westminster Abbey in May this year. Um, Britain is now a multi-faith nation, so I believe we will see some reflection of that in the service on the day itself. Um, it's pretty much accepted, I think, that King Charles is keen to position himself as defender of the faiths, plural, rather than defender of the faith, meaning the Anglican Church alone. So I think we can expect a drive towards inclusivity. It must be said, I, I really don't envy the role of the king, the queen consort, the royal family, and the courtiers responsible for organising the coronation this year to, to fashion an epic event which is somehow rooted in splendour and tradition and the hereditary principle is going to be a very tall order in 2023. Um, I can only imagine that a huge amount of thought and attention is, is being devoted to pleasing both camps, the conservative and the progressive. It's going to be a very fine wire to tread and it remains to be seen what the public reaction will be. I, I hope very much it will be, it will be positive. That being said, it's easy to see the entire notion of a coronation as this incredibly archaic and mystical and immutable rite. And in some ways it is, of course, defined by traditions and symbolism that seem unbelievably alien and remote. And yet throughout history, and certainly in modern history, by which I mean the 19th and 20th centuries, um, uh, British coronations have always reflected not just the personal tastes and aspirations of the monarch being crowned, but also the, the, the cultural backdrop against which the, the coronation is taking place. So if the coronation in May this year does reflect the, the changed and changing conditions of British society in 2023, there will be nothing new about that. Coronations throughout history, and particularly in the 19th and 20th century, have always reflected the social, political and cultural backdrop against which they've, they've been enacted. So it's a real opportunity to define the start of an era, but no pressure, no pressure at all. It's a big one. Martin, I think the pressure is there, but um, I, I am confident that uh, the king and queen consort and the court and everyone responsible for having a hand in the coronation, I am confident they will they will pull it off. Well, we're looking forward to it very much as well. Martin, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, we'll check you out on the Instagram, see what your next project might be as well. Um, enjoy the coronation when it comes. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed, it, enjoyed that trip back in history and looking ahead to what is to come and until next time Hot save the king